Well, in his book, Everyday Discipleship for Ordinary People, Stuart Briscoe tells of a time that there was a young pastor who was officiating a funeral of a war veteran. And the dead man military's friends had asked that they have a part in the service, so they said, at the end, could you uh, lead us in a solemn moment of remembrance at the casket where we give our final salute, and then would you lead us as we march out of the funeral home? And the pastor said he would be happy to do so, and uh, this took place. But unfortunately, the effect was somewhat marred when after the final salute and the pastor turned to lead this group out who marched with military precision uh, through a door which turned out to be a broom closet. Uh, and in full view of the mourners, they had to beat a hasty retreat in confusion. And Briscoe says of this true story, it illustrates a cardinal rule or two of leadership. First, if you're going to lead, make sure you know where you're going. And second, if you're going to follow, make sure you ha- you're following somebody who knows what he's doing. As we continue in our series today in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to see that Nehemiah was a man worth following. He knew where he was going. And one of the reasons that he knew where he was going, a key reason as we saw in the past messages here in Nehemiah, is that he spent a lot of time in prayer and planning. He depended on God to lead him as he led. And so as we pick up the story today in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9, we're going to find uh, some additional lessons in leadership that we can learn from Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 2, 9 through 11, it tells us, Then I came to the governors of the providences beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Now, when we left off last time, you'll remember that Nehemiah had been in the court with King Artaxerxes I, and he had requested these letters be given to him for travel to Jerusalem, where he was going back to try to rebuild the walls. And rather than doing as Ezra had done 14 years earlier, remember there was another group of Jews who had returned. Now, Ezra had to take the long way around, and so it took him three months to get there. Nehemiah took over a month off his journey by having a more direct route, but it was still a lengthy trip of two months to get there. And as Nehemiah went on his way, we're told there's a royal escort that goes with him. Now, this is important not only because of the protection that it gave, but as we're going to see when we get to verse 19, it's important to show that Nehemiah is an official of the royal court because there are people who are questioning his legitimacy. And so those who are questioning, we see who's leading this group in verse 10. The first man who is mentioned is Sanballat, and he's called the Horonite. There was a pagan god called Horan, and so what this tells us is he's a worshiper, not of the true God Jehovah or Yahweh in heaven, but of this pagan god. Now, there was a town called Beth Horan. Beth in Hebrew means house. The house of Horan, it's located 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So this is an area just up to the north of where uh, Nehemiah would have been, and we see that this is where Sanballat is probably from. Last time we talked about in the Bible that there are things that we're told that we can cross-check against what's called extra-biblical or outside-the-Bible non-biblical sources. And one of the ways that we can know and have uh, confidence in the things we read in the Bible is all of the confirmation in outside documents. And one of the things that many times scholars turn to is something called the Elephantine Papyri. 
Papyri is the plural form of the, the papers, the documents people wrote on papyrus at the time. And there was a fortress in Egypt called Elephantine. And so scholars have recovered 175 ancient writings from this uh, fortress. And they date all the way back to 5 BC. That's 5 BC, not even the 5th century of our time. And one of the documents there talks about a man by the name of Sanballat, who was the governor of Samaria. Now, last time we talked about how Samaria, uh, Syria, was uh, rebelling against King Artaxerxes. So if this is the same guy, he, you can see why he wants Jerusalem to be kept weak, because it would be easier to take over if they were not fortified. Now, another man mentioned is Tobiah the Ammonite. And the Ammonites are a tribe that came from Abraham's nephew, Lot, Uh, modern-day Jordan's capital is Amman, and this is the area that he would have been from. And you see all the way back how far back the bad blood goes between the Jews in this area. So in verse 11, it tells us that Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and he's there for three days. Now, remember, he took the more direct route, but this is still a two-month journey. So he was worn out when he gets there. In Ezra chapter 8, you read how Ezra himself also rested for three days after he led the people into Jerusalem. And so rest is something that's very important. God commands we take a Sabbath rest as people. It's something we see all throughout the scripture that the people rested. Jesus himself withdrew for times of prayer. Elijah, after the big battle, rested under the juniper tree. And so this is something that we sometimes neglect and we push our bodies to the red line. But rest is very important. And as we're going to talk about here uh, in leadership, being able to have times to withdraw and to think and plan are very important. I think many of us can think of a time where we made uh, really some, some not very wise decisions when we were fatigued or tired and we're not able to, to fully con- you know, contemplate and think and, and process information. Fatigue can cloud our perspective and it can also cause us to act out of frustration. Uh, General George Patton once said that fatigue can make any man a coward. And Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, had a similar saying about uh, that in football as well. I think I've learned in my own life that it's not wise to make any important decisions when you're fatigued, when you're frustrated, or when you're fearful. And so as Nehemiah is there in this place of leadership, Uh, he makes sure to get some time to withdraw and rest before he proceeds to the next step of the project. And one of the important parts of leadership that many people never see are these private times of thinking and dreaming that are required to effectively lead any kind of an organization. Um, There's an interview from the past in the New York Times where then-president of Yale University, Dr. Bino Schmidt, Jr., said, if I, can put, if I cannot put my feet on the desk and look out the window and think without an agenda, I may be managing Yale, but I won't be leading it. So as you think about your own life, what kind of opportunities, what kind of margin, what kind of time do you allow yourself to step back and kind of survey the situation and to think and dream? Rather than simply being those who are reactionary, we all need time to re- rest and reflect Uh, This is especially true if you're somebody who's been placed in a position of leadership. So you can think time to, to, you can have time to think and dream as we talked about, to map out where you're taking your organization or your team. 
We've already seen in a previous message how Nehemiah spent four months in prayer and planning, and he knew the route he would take. He knew the supplies that were needed. And now we find him there in uh, Jerusalem about to implement the first step of his plan. I know you may be sitting here right now this morning thinking, well, you know, I wish I had that luxury, Roger. I wish I had time to step back from everything, but I live in a, in a crisis situation where I go from one thing to the next to the next, and I never have this time to effectively deal with things just because of the day-to-day operations and crises that continually crop up and take time away. But if we don't do those things, then we're really not going to be effective in the long term. We have to have time to pause and plan. And we see that Nehemiah did that. Prayer was an essential part of the planning process. At this point in the book, this, this, we've already seen him pray twice, and there are going to be ten additional prayers. There's actually a prayer here that doesn't specifically say that he was praying, but we're going to see that God, in verse 12, it says, I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. So he's in this time of, of listening to God. He's praying, and he's open, and he's saying, God, would you lead me? There was, a, as you think in terms of the way that you make decisions, do you have that time in your life? Now, again, I know you're thinking, well, I don't have that. I can't. I don't have that luxury. I face that dilemma in my own life as well. And uh, maybe this illustration of a young man who was a lumberjack will help us understand the importance of taking time like this. There was a, this uh, young man who wanted to work for a company, and he uh, went to the logging site. He approached the foreman of the company, and he said, I'd like to hire on. I've got my axe. I'm a good lumberjack. And he said, well, let's see what you can do. And so he pointed the man at a, a tree, and he said, uh, I want you to fell this tree. And so he unsheaths his axe. He goes to work, and very quickly he takes down this very large tree. And the foreman was very impressed with this, and he said, well, you can start today. He said, we pay on Fridays. And the young man began his, his time working at the job. Well, so he was surprised when the foreman approached him on Thursday, and he said, on your way out today, you can pick up your paycheck. And this young man said, but I thought you paid on Friday. And he said, well, we normally do, but we're, we're going to have to let you go. And this guy was shocked, and he said, what, what do you mean you're letting me go? Why, why are you firing me? And he said, well, we're letting you go because you're falling behind. Our daily charts show that you've dropped from first place on Monday to last place on Wednesday, and you're even farther falling behind today. And this guy says, that's impossible. He said, I come early, I leave late, I work hard, I, I, I don't even take time for breaks, I work through my lunch. And and sensing this young man's integrity, the foreman said to him, he said, uh, are you taking time to sharpen your axe? And the guy said, what do you mean sharpen my axe? I don't have time. I'm too busy working. I wonder how many of us do that. How many of us say, Roger, I'm too busy getting things done. I don't have time to, to sharpen my axe, so to speak. I don't have these times to withdraw and to pray. And as I said earlier, I understand that dilemma. Uh, it's hard sometimes to find that time. I find as a pastor that there are times that I'm like, God, I'm too busy to talk to you. I'm too busy serving you to spend time with you. And you're thinking, Roger, that's ridiculous. You should be in prayer, and I should, and so should you. And so are we taking time to sharpen our axe? Are we taking these times to withdraw? And I know you can feel like you're losing time and productivity, but if you don't take time to stop, to pray, to plan, to exercise, to eat right. In the long term, you become dull. 
and you lose the capacity to do things. So in the long run, time invested in those things will actually pay greater dividends. So when we neglect these critical times of sharpening, we're going to lose our edge. And we see that with Nehemiah, he was one that understood the importance as a leader of having these times away. There's an old carpenter's axiom, and it says, if you measure once, you'll cut twice. But if you measure twice, you'll only cut once. What that means is if you kind of eyeball the situation or rush into it or do a quick thing, in all likelihood, you're going to end up not having the exact mark that you needed to cut on, and you're going to waste time and resources as you have to go back and do the work another time. And so it's important for us to make sure that we're, we're acting on correct information, which will save us time and resources in the long run. Verses 12 through 15, we see where Nehemiah gets some of this valuable information. It's a lesson in leadership that we can gain from looking at him. It says in verse 12, And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and the gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up by night at the ravine and I inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and I returned. Now, next week, I'm going to show you actually a map of the city, and we're going to go through this route and the things Nehemiah is looking at. So I'm not going to linger over those details today. We'll talk about that next week. But what I want you to see here is how Nehemiah is out among the rubble. Nehemiah is out doing a personal inspection. Now, in leadership, you know that you can't get everything firsthand. You have to have people you trust in your organization or in your group that that will bring you information But as a leader, it is very important that at times you get out and you get firsthand information yourself, that you look at things, that you make your own detailed assessment. I have a friend who's the CEO of a company, and he told me once, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. You get what you inspect, not what you expect. And we see that Nehemiah is one who goes on a tour here. And as he does so, it's not like the one the politicians do that we see on TV, you know, in a... In a situation like the hurricane, they do this flyover, and maybe there's this, you know, photo op where they, you know, get down there. But Nehemiah is not doing a flyover. It tells us he is literally out among the ruins. He's, he's gotten off his, his high horse, literally, and he's crawling around in the midst of the mess. There's no press corps that is along with him. He only has a handful of advisors and security with him as he goes out among the rubble. And like the planning sessions that few people see, this is one of the, the unglamorous and sometimes lonely parts of leadership where, where you first have to get the facts. And as we see about him uh, riding around the city walls, the Hebrew word that is used here for inspect means to look into something very carefully. It's actually a medical term. It's a term that means to probe a deep wound where they will go in and they will take the debris out. They will look at the uh, extent of the injury and assess it and begin to work on, on, you know, stitching up or or healing the wound. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's looking into this very carefully. 
Alan Redpath uh, wrote a book called Victorious Christian Service. And speaking about this, he says, Imagine his grief of heart as he stumbled among those ruins of, which, of what was once a great and mighty fortress. He says, Whenever a real work of God is to be done, some faithful, burdened servant has to take a journey such as Nehemiah took, to weep in the night over the ruins, to wrestle in some dark Gethsemane in prayer. Redpath asks, are our hearts ever stirred like that? Have you ever lost one hour of sleep over the tragic spiritual dearth of your church and your city? Has, has it ever kept you awake? And have you ever cried out, oh God, what can I do about this thing? What can I do, you might be asking. We talked in one of the first sermons in this series about the walls of our city being broken down, not literally, but the decay spiritually in society, the, the turning away, the lack of compassion, the increase in violence, all the things that are happening. And as you've looked around at, at the place where God has you in your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, as you encounter people on the street, do you have a heart, as Red Paths described here, are we willing to be a faithful, burdened servant who weeps in the night over the ruins? And it's not just to weep over the ruins, but it's to have our hearts so moved that we move to get down in the very mess itself. Nehemiah is out in the middle of the mess, and, and he helps as he comes across these people that he encounters. If you're saying, but Roger, the, the stuff around me is, is such a mess. I don't want to get involved in it. It's too big for me to handle or it's too messy to get involved with. I want you to think for a moment about what God did for us. How God, who was on his very throne in heaven, willingly humbled himself. As God the Son, Jesus Christ, left his throne in heaven and he came to earth, he took on flesh and blood so he could walk among the mess, the muck and the mire of the world in which we live, so that he could ultimately go to a cross and give his very life as he died to pay the penalty of death that we owe for our sins in order to save us. God didn't sit up in his throne in heaven and say, look at the mess they've made, it's too much. Or it's the consequences of their sin, let them deal with it. He was moved and he moved off his throne and came to earth and ultimately died to save us. Are we willing to do as Jesus did? We're not God, but we can do as Nehemiah did. Remember where Nehemiah was when he heard the news of the people being in distress, of the walls of the city being broken down. He was sitting in the palace. He was the right-hand man to the king, the cupbearer to the king. He was living a life of luxury. And he could have wept and said, that's terrible what you guys are facing in Jerusalem. But he was moved to leave his place of luxury and prominence. And he went to Jerusalem. And now we find him down crawling around in the dirt and the rubble. And as Nehemiah can, conducts his survey, we're told he does it in secret. He's moving about in the moonlight. Verse 16 says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. From the leaders to the local workers, Nehemiah initially keeps his plan a secret. He doesn't share this with anybody. You know, I've worked a number of jobs. I've bus tables. I've flipped Burgers, I've stocked shelves, I've worked in an office, I've done construction, I've supervised police on the street, and even as a pastor, and no matter what place or position I've been, I found this one thing to be true in every case. 
When people know an inspection is coming, they put on a show, don't they? You ever been told at work, hey, the you know, higher-ups are coming? We've got to get everything ship-shape. It's going to be a white-glove inspection. So you hide all the stuff. You kind of put a coat of paint on something. You fix things up. And Nehemiah knows that if he says, I'm going to do this inspection, that suddenly there's going to be this flurry of activity to make things look better than they were. He wanted to know what the real facts were. So he doesn't announce the inspection, and he goes at a time that no one expected. You know, Nehemiah is practicing what's called management by walking around. Nehemiah gets out, and he walks around, and he looks at things himself. And if you're a person in a place of leadership, you need to do this. You need to leave your office, and you need to get out among the, the you know, assembly line. You need to get out on the factory floor. You need to walk around the office. You need to see what is going on. Leave your desk, leave your cubicle or your corner office. I do that here at Wayside. I get out and I walk around and I I visit people in the various areas. I step in in various ministry and things that are taking place. Now listen, I don't do that to catch people doing wrong. I actually do it to catch people doing good things. To be able to come alongside people and say, that is awesome. Good job. Encourage the student pastors when they're doing something. Be in the children's area and say, that was great how these various activities were taking place. Get out among the various departments that you oversee and find out what's going along. And it it gives you an opportunity to connect and to talk with people who may say, I've wanted to talk to you, but I haven't made an appointment yet. And and while you're standing at their desk, you get to, to hear something that may be important for you to know about the organization or the area that you're overseeing. Now, another reason that Nehemiah didn't tell anyone what he's doing was because nobody had been doing anything for years. Remember, Ezra had returned 14 years earlier, and we saw in a previous uh, sermon where the king had stopped the work on the walls. They had rebuilt the temple, but the work on the walls had, had been stopped. And so nobody's been doing anything for years. And, and so he doesn't want people walking around with him telling him why his plan wouldn't work before he ever tries to implement it. Let me ask you this question. Is it easier to promote an idea or to kill one? Is it easier to promote an idea or to kill one? Have you ever been in a meeting and uh, you kind of say, hey, we should do this, and immediately people pile on with all the problems and why that won't work? Has that ever happened to you? And so what happens here is uh, if you haven't found this out yet, you're going to find that negative people tend tend to be more vocal than positive people. And, And the poison that they can spread... And, and the, the, the stuff that they can quickly discourage other people with what they're saying. And so what we see Nehemiah doing here is he protects his plan from a premature death. He goes out and he does his own research. And then he waits for the right time to reveal what the plan is going to be, what's happening next. And we actually see him doing that in verses 17 through 18. Look at that with me. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. The Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Max Dupree, who's a leadership guru, says the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. 
The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And here you see Nehemiah doing that. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, you see the bad situation we're in. Jerusalem is desolate and we're without defenses. Now, it doesn't take a forensic expert with a microscope to figure that out, right? You can walk through the city. You can see the destruction, the ruins. And that in and of itself was part of the problem. Because if you see something long enough, after a while, it may get to the point where you no longer even notice it. You can probably think of a time where something was broken, where you work or at home, and uh, you wanted it fixed. But as it was left undone for long enough, it got to the point where you just learned to live with it. Now I see somebody pushing their spouse out there. You all stop that. Um, But that can happen with us, right? It's not only in the, the stuff in the places we work. It can happen in our own life. It can happen with sin in our life. We can have something that's going on in our life that after a while we become numb to it. We just learn to live with it. We learn to ignore it. You know, the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down for 142 years. We read how Nehemiah wasn't even able to ride along the route. He had to leave and go up through a different area because the the path was blocked. And sometimes that's what happens in our own life. We have this addiction. We have this sin. We have this thing going on in our life. And we just say, you know, I've learned to work around it. I've learned to go around the rubble. And we ignore it and no longer even deal with it. But when it comes to to that, is there anything like that in your own life this morning? Is there something that you've been living with for a long time and you've just learned to live with it? God says, don't live with it, deal with it. And if you're somebody who's in leadership, it's your job to help people deal with the problems around you. And as we look at what Nehemiah does, he, he finds a way to deal with the broken things to fix it. Now, notice I didn't say that as a leader, you're to lone ranger it. That you're to be the one who goes out and fixes everything. You're not. It's your job to mobilize people, to motivate and resource them, and to help them to be part of the solution. As Nehemiah does this, I want you to look at verse 17. Because in verse 17, there are three vitally important words that we see there. As you look at verse 17, the three most important words that are there are we, us, and we. We, us, and we. Did you notice what Nehemiah said? He didn't say, hey, guys, I got here three days ago. This is your problem. You've been living with it. What are you guys going to do about it? He didn't say, okay, I'm here as the leader. I'm here to make things happen. I'm going to be in my office, and if you need something, come get me. But you guys get on it. Let's get to work. Nehemiah was one who got himself involved in the work. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see how he's literally out there on the wall doing the work with the people. He's in the midst of it. Leading by example, Dwight Eisenhower was a five-star general as well as uh, later a president of the United States. And whenever Eisenhower wanted to talk about leadership with somebody, he would take out a piece of string and he would lay it on the table and he would illustrate leadership with this piece of string. And what he would do is he would pull it toward himself and he said, do you see what this string is doing? He says, whatever I do with it, it follows me. And then he would turn and he would try to push it. And the string would all scrunch up and it'd kind of go cattywampus and all this other stuff. And he would say, if you really want somebody to follow you as a leader, then lead them. And this is what we're going to see Nehemiah does. He leads by example all throughout the process. 
And as we talk about Nia being, being involved in the work, I want you to make sure you don't forget that as we talked about in a, again earlier in this series, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And Nehemiah has been praying and working on the wall for four months, as we saw in chapter 1. And now he's, he's there physically on, in Jerusalem. He's still in prayer. He's still working by asking God to be involved in the process. And he communicates that in verse 18 because he tells the people how God's hand was helping them. He also mentions how he, how he has uh, spoken to King Artaxerxes. Because one of the things a good leader does is they anticipate potential problems and roadblocks. Remember in his prayer and planning, he knew the route, he knew the letters he needed, he knew the supplies. And here what he does is he presents his plan, he immediately anticipates what his critics are going to say, why this isn't going to work. And one of them is, well, you know, last time we started the work, uh, King Artaxerxes stopped work on the wall. So Nehemiah makes sure, he says right up front, we have the king's permission. This work has been blessed by the king, we're allowed to do it, we're going to do it. So he anticipates this problem. And as we saw in verse 17, uh, the payoff is, is that the people, through his praying and planning, they say, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. Now, not everybody's excited. Not everybody wants to help in the project because in verse 19, we're told, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us. And said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, did you notice that a new name is added to the list there? There's Geshem the Arab. One of the things you'll find is that anytime there's progress in a project, so too will the opposition increase. If you're somebody who's leading something and there's no opposition, then you're probably not being very effective. And the reason for that is because wherever there's movement, there's friction. And so as this project begins to move, as there's progress in it, the amount of opposition increases. And part of the unwritten job description for every leader is the ability to handle criticism. Because as a leader, you are going to have critics and you are going to be criticized. And when people criticize you, when people give criticism, uh, you need to listen. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that here in a moment more fully, but... Some people that I know just say, I never listen to critics. I don't listen to criticism. Well, I do. And some of you know that because you send me emails and letters and other things, and I respond to you. <laughs> so when you get somebody who has uh, the gift, the spiritual gift of criticism, I'm going to put it that way, <laughs> and they, they want to share with you uh, things, look for the kernel of truth in it. Okay, just don't dismiss it outright. It may be a chronic complaint or it may be somebody that you know already what they're going to say, but listen to them and see, is there something here that I need to hear? It could be something you missed. It could be something that, that is actually helpful to the process, that you are going to be able to make the process better because you listen to the person. Now, having said all that, I want you to understand this. Do not get sidetracked by putting out the fires uh, or, or dealing with those who are in opposition to you because you can spend all your time dealing with critics that you get drawn off the actual project or the work you're trying to do. As you look at verse 20, look at how Nehemiah deals with the opposition. So I answered them, 
And I said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. You know, Nehemiah could have whipped out all the letters from the king. He could have said, look, I'm the governor of Judah. I have the king's official, uh, you know, go ahead on the project. And he could have spent all this time debating with these individuals and proving them wrong. But instead, what he does is he doesn't get drawn off to work on the wall. Several more times in this book, we're going to see where they try the same tactic. Hey, Nehemiah, we have to have a meeting. Nehemiah, we want you to meet us over here. And and he says later in the book, I'm doing too great a work for God to come down off the wall. He says, I'm not going to waste my time coming down to talk to you guys. Now, while Nehemiah doesn't get drawn into the argument, notice he doesn't ignore them completely. It said he answered them. And and Nehemiah knows he needs to get them out of there because if he allows them to hang around, these enemies are going to hinder the work. So he employs the take a hike strategy of leadership. He tells them to hit the road. He says, you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Remember, Sambalat was a pagan, a Horonite. He didn't worship Jehovah. He worshiped this pagan god, Horon. Tobiah was a renegade, an enemy of Israel. Geshem is an Arab. He's outside the covenant people. And so what he says is, you guys have no part in the project. I'm not going to spend time with you. I'm not going to let you be around. There are times a leader needs to be gentle and negotiate with those who are in opposition. But there are also times that you draw a line and you say, this isn't even worthy of discussion. We're not going to spend any time on it. And you move on. As a pastor of a church, I, I get to deal with this all the time. There are times people will come to me and they will want to argue about something that the Bible is black and white on. And I tell the individual, this is what God's word says. We don't have to decide whether this is right or wrong. God has already said very clearly, this is sin. This is wrong. And so there's no further discussion that needs to take place. Now, as you've heard me say before, truth can be like ice, crystal clear and just as cold. So I'm not telling you to be cold to people and to run over people. But what I am telling you to do is to discern, is this something worthy of discussion? Or or does this something that is black and white and there's no wiggle room and so we don't even need to spend time on it? Now, if somebody is is a non-believer who has honest questions, who truly doesn't know anything about the Bible, who doesn't know who Jesus is and is honestly seeking, I will spend days with them walking through the scriptures, talking with them, helping them understand and walk through, you know, and and have back and forth discussions. But if it's somebody who is just going to waste your time, then don't waste your time with them. The Bible is clear about that. It it tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 7, not to spend time in fruitless discussion. Use your time in more productive ways. It's the same thing in working with people. We've, We've all been around somebody who's got it all figured out who says they've arrived, they have nothing to learn. If somebody's not teachable, if somebody feels like you can add no value to them, then don't waste your time with them. Now, if it's somebody who is is a young, growing, developing person who's green and is going to make mistakes in various things, wonderful. I love those kind of people. I love working with young men and women who are young eagles learning to fly. I love developing and growing them. But if there's somebody who is, who is not teachable, then I don't spend a lot of time with that person because it's a waste of time. And you need to discern in the limited time you have what to do. How many doctors do you think there are who would continue to work with a patient who kept showing up at their office and saying, I'm not getting any better? 
And the doctor says, okay, well, let's kind of review the history. We've, we've, you know, run these tests. We found you had this issue, and I prescribed this medicine for you. Did, did you get that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get around to filling that prescription. Or, yeah, you know, I filled it, but it's sitting on the shelf at home. You mean you're not taking it? Well, no. It, you know, but I don't feel any better. The doctor's going to go until you start taking the prescription. It's not helpful if you've got an injury and you're in rehab or the therapist is saying these are the exercises you have to do and you're not doing them and you show back up for your next appointment and you go, you know, it still hurts. I can't, can't do this. And Well, have you been doing it? No. There's going to come a point where that, that person is going to say to you, I have a waiting room full of people who want to get better. And you obviously don't, so I'm not going to waste any more time with you. And this is Nehemiah. Nehemiah looks at these guys and he says, you don't want things to get better. You don't want to work on the walls. You want to hinder the work. So he says, you have no part. You, you, you're, you're, you're out of the, the group. You know, one of the things you're going to find is whenever God's people say, we will arise and build, Satan will always respond, and I will arise and oppose. I will arise and oppose. And in verse 19, we see some of Satan's favorite tools. It's ridicule, discouragement, and fear. As the people begin to work here, those on Satan's side start with fear. They say, what is this you're doing? You're rebelling against the king. Wait till Artaxerxes hears about this. Now remember, Nehemiah's already said, look, Artaxerxes knows about it. Here's the letter. He's given us permission. Next, they move to ridicule. They laugh and they say, you know, these walls have been broken down for over 140 years and you guys think you're going to be any different than everybody else? Later in the book, we're going to see when the walls are halfway built, they're going to mock them and they're going to say, you know, if a little fox jumps on your wall, the whole thing's going to come crashing down. So they're ridiculing, trying to discourage them. Some of you have dealt with these similar type of things in your own life. When you're out trying to share your faith, people will try to scare you. They'll, they'll use all kinds of names about you being, you know, so narrow-minded that you think there's only one way to heaven. Well, Jesus Christ said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's pretty black and white. No one. There's one way, one road. And so people will mock you. You know, they'll, they'll try to discourage you. It happens in your own life when you try to deal with some of the stuff we talked about earlier. Maybe a sin area or an addiction you're battling. And you're trying to make things better in your life. And as you talk to the people will come and they'll talk to you. And your friends, supposedly your friends, will laugh at you. Say, come on, what are you doing? Why are you trying to get sober? Why don't you go out and party with us? You know, you know that you've tried this before. You're going to fail. There's, there's no hope. I mean, just, you know, come on. Maybe you have failed in the past. But that doesn't mean that you're going to fail this time. And even if you do, God is a God of the second and the seventh and the 700th chance. He doesn't give up on you, so don't give up on yourself either. The Bible tells us when we were at our worst, when we were far from God, when we were living in rebellion, Romans 5, 8 said he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't give up on you. He left his throne in heaven to come to earth to live among us to ultimately go to the cross to give his life to save us. And he calls on you to come to him, to do as Nehemiah did, to pray. 
to surround yourself with people who are going to help you, as we're going to see further in this book. So as you look at your life today, God wants you to do as these people did in Jerusalem. Instead of being held a prisoner by fear or your past, look to God and start rebuilding in your life. And for the rest of us, there are lessons in leadership we can take from this message today. We can use them to help others because whether we're leading a company or leading somebody to the Lord, they can help us to become those godly leaders that God wants us to be where we influence and we show by example what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for stories about men like Nehemiah. Father, this isn't just a book of history. This isn't just some great story about how walls were rebuilt. These are real people facing real dilemmas. And as we look at their lives and how they trusted in you and followed you, there are many things we can learn. And so, God, we ask that you would, you would help us. Help us in our own walk with you. Father, you've given us different areas of influence. Some here lead companies or organizations. Others impact others through a, a peer-to-peer relationship or a parent as a ch- to a child. God, whatever capacity you've given us, you've called us. And you've given us a, an important commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so, Father, would you help us to be servant leaders, following the example not just of men like Nehemiah, but more importantly, that of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who led by example, the one who gave his very life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. Father, thank you for the privilege of letting us be called children of yours, sons and daughters of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Christians. So, Father, as we leave here today, we ask that you would lead and guide us as we share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for others. We pray this in your holy and blessed name. Amen.